Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the language of glory, uh, for being able to sing. And uh, Lord, I pray um, that you would would bring us more singing uh, because of we see your great love for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that now, um, Lord, that you would fill me uh, with your spirit. And uh, Lord, that I, I need so much more than relevance, so much more than clarity. Um, I need uh, your spirit uh, to anoint these words. And uh, Lord, I pray you would uh, anoint uh, these with us, these, these brothers, these sisters, uh, with your spirit as they hear. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I want you to think back uh, last 10 years or so uh, and what we've experienced as Americans. Uh, what, what's, what's happened these last 10 years? Uh, on one hand, you have this great expansion of gay rights. On the other, uh, you've got the, really the, uh, the resurgence of the alt-right. It's crazy days. Uh, you, we've got the first African-American who's been uh, ever elected was elected. Uh, and you've got Donald Trump elected all in the last 10 years. It really is crazy. I mean, think about the 10 years before that. What would you have expected that anything like this would have come down at us? And it really it makes you ask the question, how do I live my life as a Christian in this kind of environment where at times the world seems increasingly progressive and at times increasingly regressive? It certainly seems like one thing is for sure, and that's that we live in a post-Christian environment. But it really isn't exactly clear what kind of environment that is, is it? And what's the solution? What should we do as Christians? Should we, uh, should, should, should we on, on one hand, should we try to grasp back the power to take the cultural influence that's been lost for decades? Or should we have a bleaker view of the current state of things and we withdraw We focus on shoring up our institutions. We prepare to live life in isolation from the world. And if you're like me, uh, you just don't want to think about any of these things, and you just want someone to tell you what to do. (laughs) You just want seven steps for being a Christian in 2019 in America. Uh, Well, I, I hate to tell you, those seven steps don't exist. They just don't. But what we do have uh, in the scriptures is particularly with the book of Esther that we're going to be in the next several weeks is that we have a story. And what stories do is they inspire our imaginations to think creatively. And this book, Esther, it takes place during the Jewish exile. Now, even if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, that's totally fine. But what you need to know is that uh, the, 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 uh, the Jews were taken into what is modern day Iran for the most part. And they were put in captivity there. And while they were in captivity by the Babylonians who took them there, Babylon got beat down by the Persians. And some of the Jews went back to what is present-day Israel, but some of them stayed. And when you get to Esther, they've been in captivity for about 100 years. And those who have stayed have chosen to stay. And when they were in captivity in Persia, don't think of them being slaves. Think of this as a peaceful arrangement. This was, this was, it would remain peaceable as long as the Jews didn't rock the boat. They could live their lives as they wished. They just had to pay their taxes. They had to give this occasional homage to the emperor. But for the most part, they could do their own thing. 
And as you can imagine, especially after 100 years, the Jews, as the minority culture, they had lost their distinctiveness. They had assimilated into the majority culture of Persia. And here you have the two main characters who are Jewish in, our, in this book, Esther and Mordecai. And what they've only ever known is being an assimilated Jew in captivity. They were born this way. They were totally out of touch with their Jewish heritage and their distinctive religious practices. So doesn't this sound like us a little bit? Aren't we kind of in the same spot? And as Christians, it's 2019, we are increasingly the, minor, the minority. And for most of us, we don't live in the illusion of being in the majority like some generations before us possibly have. And I think that's what makes Esther so helpful. But while Esther might be helpful, you need to know on the front end, it's really strange. Like, God is not mentioned in all ten chapters. Not at all. There's nothing religious in the ten chapters of Esther except one thing where there's a call for a fast. is essentially a call to prayer. So how can you have a book of the Bible not mention God and not hardly put forth any religious elements and still put it in there? Well, it gets weirder, a lot weirder. Uh, Esther is quite heathen. The book of Esther is quite heathen. It's really scandalous. And maybe you're like, well, that's not the story of Esther I've heard before. I've heard Esther is this pillar of virtue. She's this gorgeous, dignified Jewish woman who wins the heart of a king. And then when her people are in crisis, she's the one who's willing to fall on the sword. But I hate to tell you, if that's the way Esther's been presented to you, that's not the way scriptures present Esther to us. She's way more like the Kim Kardashian of the Old Testament. She's rich, she's beautiful, she's powerful, and she's charming. And Mike Cosper, uh, an author of a book on Esther, he says this about the book. He says, think less Veggie Tales and more Game of Thrones. So you've got Esther, you've got Mordecai, these Jews. They're God's chosen people in this story, but they're not portrayed in the same way that some other biblical characters are. So you've got Joseph, and you've got Daniel, and for the most part, the apostles in the book of Acts, where we've been, and they're really portrayed as the exemplary characters in the scriptures. But when you look at Esther and Mordecai in the book of Esther, they're, they're far frailer. They're more compromised, and they're more human. They're conflicted characters. On one hand, they really care about saving uh, their people. On the other hand, all they care about is saving their own skin. So as we read through the book of Esther, we need to read it not as a book about morality. It really is a story about God. A story about a God who uses people who have become all too accustomed to the wider culture in order to use them to fulfill his promises. So, uh, as we get started, uh, let, me, uh, let me summarize these first nine verses. Uh, you'll see in your bulletin that we start with verse 10, but let me give you one, one through nine uh, in summary. Uh, you see a king uh, in, in, in Persia at that time, and his name is Xerxes. Perhaps uh, your version of the scripture says Artaxerxes, same dude, and he's the king. And in, in the first nine verses, you see him throwing this lavish party. 
It's got, uh, it's, it's got amazing decorations. It's got plentiful food. The wine was boundless. But here's the kicker. This party was six months long. A six-month party. And it was for the political elites. It was for the leader of each of his 127 provinces. He brings all these 127 leaders uh, to the king's palace, and he throws a party for them for six months. And the last week of those six months, he expands it out to everyone, both small and great, is what the text says. And he gives them the same plentiful food and the boundless wine. But why does he do it? Does he just do it because he likes the party? I think that's part of it. But I think part of it is what he's trying to do is he's trying to consolidate power. And when the book opens, he's in year three of his reign. He reigns for 20 years, and he's got one objective that he wants to accomplish during his 20-year reign. But he knows in the first couple years he's got to set the groundwork. But now in year three, it's time for him to set his agenda. And his agenda is simple. He wants to crush the Greeks. See, the Greeks had defeated his father. His father's name is Darius, along with Darius's army. And now it's time for his son, Xerxes, to pay back the Greeks for what they did to his dad. And so what he's doing with these 127 political elites is he, wanted, he wants to bring them in to curry their favor so that he might have support across his vast empire so he might defeat Greece. And at the end of these six months, as you can imagine, he's really good and he's really drunk, stupid drunk, and it gets saucier in verse 10. So let's read it together. On the seventh day, the heart of the king was merry with wine. You know what that means. And he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Sethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the prince, seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? The Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." 
So when, she, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every royal province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The word of the Lord. All right, the Bible's interesting, isn't it? A little Game of Thrones we got going on right here. Uh, but let's summarize what we just read in these 13 verses. The first thing that happens is that Queen Xerxes calls in Queen Vashti. And if you think that what he means by calling her in is this low-key hello, this royal wave, you've not really reckoned with what the Persians thought about women. This wasn't going to be a low-key hello in a royal way. This was much more likely going to lead to some degree of sexual humiliation for Vashti. See, women in Persia, they were considered the property of men. And Xerxes has cloistered Vashti away in this distant corner of his palace. And her whole life is really about this grueling regimen of treatments that she's receiving to improve her appearance and her texture and her scent. And she's only allowed to see the king when he summons her. But when she's summoned, she's not summoned to be some kind of partner in his life. She's not summoned to be some kind of partner in his rule. When she's summoned, it's just another display of power on Xerxes' behalf. And so when she comes in, the crowd's going to admire her beauty. They're going to be impressed that the king has such a beautiful woman for his use. The problem is that Vashti will not comply to the king's wishes. She refuses to go. And when she refuses to go, you know what the king's like. You saw him. The king's embarrassed. And he's embarrassed because he needs these men who are there in his presence to obey him moving forward as he goes out to war. And what he's thinking is, if my own wife won't obey me in my own home, why would these men obey me out there on the battlefield against the dangerous Greeks? So in his embarrassment, he goes to his council. He asks them what should be done to the queen for forbidding his request. And you've got this group of hormone-driven men that come up with quite the plan, don't they? They said, let's tell the whole kingdom that Vashti did not come And so she's doomed for the rest of her life to live in isolation, and she's lost her title of the queen. And if we do that, then women will continue to honor their husbands. In other words, here's what happens to Vashti. She's now dead to Xerxes. Every emotional material thing that she had in her possession, she's now lost. It's been stripped from her. And you know, uh, you know why the council loved this, don't you? Well, for one, it soothed Xerxes' hurt ego. That's probably the biggest thing. They knew he would love this plan. They also knew that it, this, 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 uh, this plan would keep the wives in the Persian kingdom from being emboldened by Vashti's resistance. They also knew that, most of all, the Persian men would love the plan, and they'd be more likely to be on board for the impending war against the Greeks. 
So at first glance, we see all of this that happens in chapter 1, and we're tempted to look at Persia as a world so unlike our own that it's incomprehensible, that has no relevance to where we are in 2019 as sophisticated, advanced, progressive Americans. These are primitive people. This is a primitive society, primitive technology, primitive religion, primitive ideas about humanity. They are nothing like us. If you think that, I kind of understand. But thinking this way is a real mistake. Because generally speaking, the human heart has not changed that much. All of us build empires. All of us build empires in hopes of inspiring loyalty and love and admiration. It's an appetite. And it's an appetite that God's given us. It's one of the chief aspects of being an image bearer, being made in God's image. See, Genesis 1.26 says this. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, what's it mean to be made after God's image, God's likeness? Well, verse 26 tells us, it says, and they will rule. That's what God does. They will rule over the fish, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. So all of us, every person at all times for all human history, they want to rule and they want to control. And that's the way God made us. But all of us, see, this was Genesis 1. We know this is what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin and the world goes kaput. And we don't know what to do with this power, with this desire to rule. And we've fallen short of God's intention. And we see our lives differently than that of a steward, those who've been given something of creation to rule over. Instead of seeing it as a steward, we see it as an owner. That we own our lives and we own the world that we live in. And that we view our lives as an owner. We become to be anxious, controlling, and impossible. Just like Xerxes. See, he thought he owned Persia. He thought he owned these political elites. He thought he owned Vashti. And when that ownership got challenged... He gets so anxious that he makes crazy decisions. And what Xerxes shows us is that those who are in power often are compelled by fears. Compelled by anxieties. And it's a terrifying scenario for those under their leadership. So have you ever been under that kind of leadership? See, even in democracies, democracies like ours, we've seen the gross misuse of power. We see the misuse of power in big business. We see it, unfortunately, within the church. See, all you've got to do is go to your social media feeds or go to news outlets, and you're going to see that Xerxes is alive and well out there. But Xerxes is alive and well in here, too. You might say, come on, preacher, I, I, don't, I don't have no power. I'm just a daggum student. I'm an entry-level employee. I don't have a dog, a house, a spouse, or children. 
Or, I do have a dog, a house, children, and a spouse, and they don't listen to me anyways. My life's got nothing to do with Xerxes. Ah. But I bet you've got something that you try to exert power over. Maybe it's your figure. Count calories, work out, all to beat that body of yours into submission in the same way Xerxes trying to control his life. Maybe it's your kids. You've got a plan for their life. Be good as you define good. Be successful as you define success. Be attractive as you define attractive. And what do you get if that happens? You just got a smaller, underdeveloped version of your dream self. Maybe it's your grades. Maybe it's your sales quota. Maybe it's your retirement portfolio, especially this week. huh? See, Xerxes was a flawed emperor, and you're a flawed steward of the square inch that God's given you stewardship over. Begins to make you think, well, what would it look like to nail Genesis 126? What would it look like for Adam and Eve before they fell? What would it look like for me to have control but not abuse it? Well, think about a perfect king. Think about a king who's got perfect character. He's the only one who's worthy of absolute power. Think about a perfect king and how a perfect king could wield power with true law and justice. Well, friend, that power, that kind of powerful leader exists. His name's Jesus. In reading through the Gospels, what we begin to see is that the stewardship of power is a major, major theme throughout his life and his teaching. In Matthew 4, you've got Jesus. He's been fasting for 40 days, and Satan takes him up to the height of a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, if you will bow the knee to me, all this is yours. When Jesus responds, he says, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, in other words, what Jesus was saying is that he'd rather have God than have power. He'd rather worship than rule. Matthew 20. Matthew 20, you've got Jesus' disciples. They're jockeying for position to be on his executive team. They're willing to say he's the CEO in some ways, but man, wouldn't it be nice to be the CFO? Wouldn't it be nice to be lead counsel? Wouldn't it be nice to be the COO alongside Jesus and his kingdom? And Jesus knows their overtures, and he tells them, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what Jesus is doing with the disciples is that he's making the subversive claim that the kingdom of God is not about ascending a spiritual ladder of power, but it's about descending lower and lower in places of service and sacrifice. Power, according to Jesus. Get to John 13. John 13, Jesus is 
adopting the role of a foot washer when his disciples all walk in the room. Now, we know they're not the sharpest pencils in the box. We know that they're not always up to speed, but they at least understand that someone as significant as Jesus should never stoop to the role of being a household foot washer. But Jesus does so. And he does so to show them that he's going to pay a much greater price for humiliation. He's not just going to scrub their bunions. He's going to scrub their souls clean by dying on the cross. Service. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, you've got this famous text, and Jesus is starting out in, in, in verse 5 as being in the form of God. In other words, saying Jesus is equivalent to God the Father. That's what verse 5 in chapter 2 of Philippians is saying. And then we see that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, his own self-conception is that he took a step down. But then he goes lower. He, he, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's now a human being, taking a step down, even lower. But now that he's in human form, he humbles himself to the point of death. That's going even lower. And not only did he die, but he was willing to die the lowest form of death, death on a cross, crucifixion. So you see how this goes. Form of God. Didn't see as a quality of God to be something to be grasped. He takes on a body. He dies, and he dies on the cross. Oh, but verse 9. Verse 9 says that because he was willing to make this, instead of taking the ladder, he's willing to take steps lower and lower. Verse 9 said, now he's given the name that's above every name. So you see how Jesus viewed power. He lays it down. He doesn't pursue it. And he leverages what he does have on behalf of other people. So if Jesus views power in this way, what happens to our view of power? What happens if we come under the rule of Jesus? What do we begin to do with power? Well, I, I think our text gives us a couple really interesting ways of what happens. The first thing that we see is we should see humor. See, earlier when we were reading that passage, the king and those around him are really worried about all the women hearing about Vashti's refusal. They're really worried about, if they hear about Vashti's refusal, then they're not going to honor their husbands anymore. But here's my question. How are they going to hear about Vashti's resistance? I mean, there's no newspaper, there's no television network who's going to pick up this story. I mean, Xerxes has full control over the information that's being disseminated. So if he didn't want any of them to know, all he's got to do is not tell them. All he has to do is threaten those who are willing to tell the women in the kingdom about what Vashti's done is threaten them with their life. But what does he do? He's the one who tells everybody. And what the author of Esther is using is that the author is using a literary device, using the device of humor to communicate to us how laughable it is when we become power hungry. See, Xerxes totally unaware of being power hungry. He's totally unaware of his folly. But the readers of Esther 
for the last 2,500 years have been laughing at Xerxes. And that's what happens to me and you. See, when we're grasping for power, you almost are never aware of it. But then you find out how ridiculous you're being and what you should do is laugh at yourself. I mean, think about it. It is pretty silly to be a control freak about your diet and about your figure when we're just mortals who can't escape the deterioration of our physical bodies. I mean, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's pretty silly to think that you can be a control freak about your money when you can't take it with you after you die. So perhaps the best thing that you and I can do today is to quit taking ourselves so seriously and find the humor in our silly attempts to exercise power over ourselves and others. But this isn't the only place that humor comes into play when it comes to power. We should also take a second to laugh at the Xerxes in our lives that are making our lives miserable. See, Xerxes, for all his glory, all his power, all his wealth, all his prestige, he's brought to dust. And so was his kingdom. Persia doesn't even exist. So unless you're an ancient Near Eastern scholar or you're reading the book of Esther, you don't know who Xerxes is. It's pretty laughable. And what laughing does is it diffuses your fear and helps you see just how trivial your oppressor is. The second thing, what happens when Jesus' power comes over you? You also think it helps you resist. Occasionally someone does stand up and says, hey, maybe all of this isn't such a good idea. And that's exactly what Vashti does here. She's resisting the, the objectification of her sexuality. And she pray, pays a really dear price for it, doesn't she? In fact, I'm surprised she wasn't killed for it. But think about it when it comes to us. See, just because Jesus is our ultimate ruler doesn't mean that we have to peaceably coexist with oppressive leaders. It doesn't mean we just twiddle our thumbs and wait for glory. What we should do is that we refuse to participate in their rule. And we risk exile. We've got to know that if we resist, we might be called bigots. We might be called intolerant. We might be, called, we might be unwelcome in spheres of influence. But you know that you're a part of a more lasting kingdom. One with an eternal king. King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, uh, but showing us what you're like, what we're like, and what our world's like. And uh, Lord, I, I pray uh, that you would take, uh, take your words, these from Esther 1, and Lord, begin to help us apply them in different ways because we're different people uh, to w what we're about. In Jesus' name, amen.